Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We're trying to keep you up on the literature, and to do that, we spoon-feed you the latest research. That's all we've got for you, okay? So let's take a quick look at everything that we've got coming for you this week. First off, a trauma predictor that's better than blood pressure. Then, is surgery really necessary for intraarticular distal radius fractures? After that, less antibiotics is the samer for pediatric pneumonia. Then a prediction tool for the severity of pediatric community-acquired pneumonia, which might actually be on the horizon. And finally, you're not the only one stressed out by COVID. Let's see what everyone else is feeling too. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by The Understanding, Aaron Lacey, Seth Walsh-Blackmore, Vivian Lay, and Clay Smith. So here's the first article titled, Pre-hospital end-tidal carbon dioxide is predictive of death and massive transfusion in injured patients, an EAST multicenter trial out of the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. Now, when pre-hospital emergency providers pick up a trauma patient, they need to make a few critical decisions. Things like whether or not to start early blood product administration or where to bring the patients. Should this be a level 1 trauma center patient or can they go somewhere else? Being able to accurately predict outcomes could seriously help with this decision making. And tidal CO2 might be the tool that helps with that. This trial was a retrospective study of 1,300 pre-hospital intubated patients from 24 trauma centers. What they did was compare the diagnostic accuracy of the patient's lowest end-tidal CO2 against as well their systolic blood pressure and shock indexes for seeing how well these tools could predict mortality and as well predict massive transfusion protocol activation. Now, I could surely drown you in area under the receiver operating characteristic curve numbers, but the important takeaway is that the lowest antidal CO2 measured was more predictive of mortality in all comers than was the systolic blood pressure or the shock index, and this was a statistically significant difference as well. Antidal CO2 was even more predictive if you subgrouped for just normotensive patients, where they established a cutoff of 31 millimeters of mercury, meaning bad news bears. For massive transfusion protocol prediction, antidal CO2 was still the best, but not by a statistically significant amount. The cutoff for massive transfusion protocol activation was 26 millimeters of mercury as being the sort of predictive value. This is great, but you have to take into account that this is still not a very good predictor. At a cutoff of 31 millimeters of mercury for mortality, there was a 39% positive predictive value, but doing a little bit better with a negative predictive value of 83%. For massive transfusion protocol, it actually did okay, more of a rule out test than anything, a positive predictive value of 16% and a negative predictive value of 98%. In a spoonful, antidal CO2 might be the best pre-hospital predictor of mortality and massive transfusion protocol activation, but it's not going to make you clairvoyant. Then we have the second article titled Volar Plate Fixation versus Cast Immobilization and Acceptably Reduced Intra-Articular Distal Radius Fractures, a randomized control trial out of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. As winter comes, or at least for those who experience colder climates, so does a wave of distal radius fractures. Trust me, they're all the rave right now in Canada. I know I was thinking that I might have given myself one just the other day when I fell on some ice. There is much debate in this area of distal radius fractures on the topic of whether or not they need operative management. 
Generally, operative management is used for intraarticular fractures that are not adequately reduced. There are criteria for this kind of thing, of course. If we can better understand the outcomes based on the reduction, then it will be easier for us to know whether we should consult or refer patients to orthopedics. This was a trial in RCT of 90 patients aged 18 to 75 from 13 centers in the Netherlands who had displaced complete intraarticular radius fractures that were acceptably reduced according to orthopedic criteria. Patients were excluded if this was a polytrauma patient, they had prior wrist dysfunction, or there were open fractures. The patients were randomized to surgery, i.e. open reduction and internal fixation, or continued cast immobilization. When then the primary outcome was a patient-rated wrist evaluation score to measure their level of functional impairment. This is a 100-point score, and the study was powered to measure a difference of 14 points as the minimal clinically significant difference. For the first six months, operative management was better. It was favored. They had less impairment. At 12 months, there was a statistical difference favoring non-operative management, but the difference was just 7 points, which was below their cutoff of clinical significance. Secondary outcomes included grip strength, range of motion, and these were better in the operative group, but only for the first 6 months. Then there was no difference at 12 months, and there was never a difference in pain scores. Of note is that 28% of the casted group actually ended up having surgery because of displacement or non-union of their fractures. So it seems like operative management is better in the short term, but then things kind of equal out over the next year. This makes sense. You get earlier mobilization and return to function with surgery. It matters though that more than a quarter of the non-operative group still ended up getting surgery, which would of course prolong anybody's recovery. Since both options are quite reasonable, it might boil down to how dependent your patient is on their wrist. In a spoonful, after acceptable reduction of a displaced distal radial fracture, those managed operatively had better outcomes for 6 months but not at a year compared with just casting. Then the third group, titled The Effect of Amoxicillin Dose and Treatment Duration on the Need for Antibiotic Retreatment in Children with Community Acquired Pneumonia, the CAP-IT randomized clinical trial at the JAMA. Now, as we fight against antibiotic resistance, one of the things that we've been slowly realizing is that we've probably been giving much more antibiotics than is needed for some conditions. One such example is community-acquired pneumonia in the pediatric population. The SAFER trial from just earlier this year suggested that shorter durations of antibiotics are effective. This study goes one further. This was a 2 by 2 multi-center randomized clinical trial of 800 children diagnosed with community-acquired pneumonia and discharged from the hospital. They were randomized to receive either kind of a lower dose of amoxicillin, 35 to 50 milligrams per kg per day, or a higher dose at 70 to 90 milligrams per kg per day, and then both of those groups were subdivided again to receive this antibiotic prescription for either 3 or 7 days. The primary endpoint was retreatment with antibiotics within 28 days, which was almost identical in all four groups at about 12.5%. Secondary outcomes, including the markers of symptom resolution, were also similar between the groups, though slightly longer duration of cough if you only got treated with antibiotics for three days. This trial essentially says that we could be giving just about half the dose of amoxicillin for less than half the time without compromising care. 
This will not apply, unfortunately, to complicated cases or cases that require admission for more than 48 hours. In a spoonful, pediatric community-acquired pneumonia can be effectively treated with a lower dose than traditional high-dose amoxicillin, and even at a lower dose, it was still effective at a shorter duration at just three days instead of seven. After that, we have the fourth article titled Development and Internal Validation of a Predictive Model to Risk Stratify Patients with Suspected Community-Acquired Pneumonia out of the Journal of Clinical Infectious Diseases. Earlier this year, we covered the Carpe Diem study, which made it clear that physicians are not very good at predicting outcomes in pediatric community-acquired pneumonia. Well, your prayers were answered. And just what we wanted just in time for Christmas, too. This was a study, a prospective study, of 1,100 children aged 3 months to 18 years old with community-acquired pneumonia. Using this data from these patients, the authors were able to derive and internally validate a tool to predict the severity of illness in these guys. They broke severity down into three categories. Mild, patients who can be discharged or will be hospitalized for less than 24 hours with no oxygen requirements. Moderate, that is being hospitalized for less than 24 hours with oxygen or IV fluids or hospitalized for more than 24 hours. And severe, these are patients who are going to need to be in the ICU for more than 24 hours. Those with septic shock, pressure requirements, positive pressure ventilation, chest drainage, ECMO, or death. Now, these authors came up with seven variables which were predictive of the child's disease severity. Respiratory rate, systolic blood pressure, oxygenation, retractions, capillary refill, atelectasis or pneumonia on chest x-ray, and pleural effusion. The scoring here is not easy. You're going to want help from MD Calc, but I like that. I mean, find me an ER doc that doesn't have a cell phone or access to a computer on shift. We don't need simple tools anymore, particularly not if it's going to sacrifice performance. Now, if these patients were calculated to have less than a 20% chance of moderate to severe disease, then the sensitivity of this prediction was 91 to 97%. That's a negative likelihood ratio of 0.11 to 0.17. That's actually pretty good. Now, given the recent studies on treatment of community-acquired pneumonia in children, some studies showing no difference between antibiotics and no antibiotics, and of course we just spoke about how less antibiotics is pretty good too, well, maybe in the future we could use tools like this to help decide if these treatments are needed at all, let alone if they need a hospitalization. Of course, this still needs to be externally validated. In a spoonful, these authors were able to find seven variables which combined could accurately predict severity of community-acquired pneumonia in children. And here we have it, the fifth article, titled Sources of Distress and Coping Strategies Among Emergency Physicians During COVID-19 out of the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine. Honestly, this shocks me, but we it's been it's coming up on 2 years now. The COVID era has been stressful for I mean pretty much everybody. It's important that we quantify this problem though. See how we've been affected and how much so that we can address these problems. This study was of 517 emergency physicians from 11 institutions who took a survey based on quantifying the impact that COVID-19 has had on their mental health. In decreasing order of magnitude, physicians reported that COVID-19 has caused more stress, loneliness, anxiety, irritability, and feelings of sadness. There was also a substantial presence of mental illness reported, including depression, anxiety, PTSD, and insomnia. Perhaps most alarming of all was that daily alcohol use nearly doubled. 
from 8% to 15%, and that regular exercise decreased from 69% to 56% in these physicians. That's a 13-point drop in exercise. Now, I don't need to tell you that alcohol is not considered a healthy coping mechanism, but exercise using humor and positive reframing certainly are. The last two in this study were also associated with less psychological distress. This isn't a call for teaching on more burnout, absolutely not, but do be sure to check in with your colleagues. Try to make some jokes and keep an eye out for when you might be using avoidant behaviors to deal with your stress. In a spoonful, emergency physicians report feeling the weight of the COVID pandemic, higher rates of stress, feeling lonely, anxiety, feeling irritable, and feeling sad. There was also an increase in the use of alcohol, along with a decrease in daily exercise. Keep an eye out if any of this sounds like you or someone you might know. All right, that's our five articles. Let's do our wrap-up. Here, from the first article, we saw that, I mean, it's really, it's not a crystal ball. But it might be the best thing we've got. In the pre-hospital setting, end-tidal CO2 was a better predictor of mortality, and better but not statistically significantly so for massive transfusion protocol, than was systolic blood pressure or shock index. Second, operative management is not absolutely needed for distal intraarticular radius fractures that have been adequately reduced. But they do seem to recover more quickly. Also, more than a quarter of the CASTA group may still require surgery anyways. Third, writing small numbers on pediatric community-acquired pneumonia prescriptions is likely in your future. Lower doses for lower amounts of time were just as effective in terms of rates of retreatment. Fourth, another thing to look out for the external validation of, this study found that seven variables were able to predict the severity of pediatric community-acquired pneumonia with some accuracy. And finally, the fifth article, COVID's been a hard hitter and emergency physicians have certainly not been spared. Remember, try to make an effort to use healthy coping strategies like humor and positive reframing. Now then you've earned them, we offer them. We have CME credits, which are provided through our partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org, where if you're already there, you can also sign up for our newsletter and get spoon feeds through your email every day of the week. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.